listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. It's hard to tell. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 11 Ohio versus Wealth. Today we are talking about the world's richest man, John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller and his Standard Oil Company at one point accounted for 2% of the American economy. One man was 2%, actually a little more than 2%, about 2.5%. I was out to dinner with my parents last week in Miss Ohio v. The World, and they had thought Rockefeller, I told them I was doing a show about him, was from New York. Uh, but he's from Cleveland. Standard Oil started in Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland was the center of oil refining in the late 19th century. Uh, we drive to Cleveland. We interview Kevin Callahan today, uh, board member with the Western Reserve Historical Society. And he's going to talk to us all about Rockefeller in Cleveland. And Rockefeller was not just the world's richest man. He was also one of the world's most hated men. And we'll look at the role of the press and muckraking journalist Ida Tarbell in taking down Rockefeller and Standard Oil in, in the early 20th century. We're joined by Cleveland attorney and friend of mine, Ben Weiborg. And we'll look at the famous Supreme Court case against Standard Oil and kind of take you to what my experience was in law school. And we'll talk to one of my former professors at Cleveland Marshall. Chris Sagers will join us and talk about the case of the United States versus Standard Oil um, and, and trust busting. Again, our show is supported by GoBus. Thanks again to them. They are supporting us all third season. A great intra-city bus service here in Ohio, and they do such a great job of, of getting pretty much anywhere in the state cheaply, safely, uh, and comfortably. So thanks again to our friends at GoBus. Visit them at RideGoBus.com. Our beer for the episode today is Prosperity. It's brought to us uh, by one of our favorite Cleveland breweries, Market Garden Brewery up in Ohio City. You can visit them at MarketGardenBrewery.com, or better yet, just go to West 25th, right by the market. They've got an awesome uh, facility out there. And a great place to go. Good food, great drinks. And the Prosperity is like a Hefeweizen I'm drinking today. It's a wheat, one of their flagship beers, um, and, and really good stuff. So again, Market Garden Brewery, drinking the Prosperity. And it's the Prosperity that John D. Rockefeller brings to Cleveland. He changed the city. And we're going to follow his journey from being a self-made titan of industry to one of the most hated private citizens in America. But again, the man who really put Cleveland on the map. He corners the oil market, and we'll talk about how he does that. And he's just so determined. Um, but is he the monster that history has portrayed him as? But we got three guests today, so much to get to. So we're going to go from rags to riches, talk about John D. Rockefeller. It's episode 11, Ohio versus Wealth. Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, 
Northeast Ohio or Southeast Ohio and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. Thanks again to the support from our friends at GoBus. Uh, check them out, RideGoBus.com. Uh, they have been awesome, and we appreciate their support this season. Yeah, I met Kevin Callahan, our first guest from the Western Reserve Historical Society, uh, through retired judge Ellen Conley. Uh, she's a Cuyahoga County judge. Ellen serves on the board with me with the Ohio History Connection. And I was telling her, well, yeah, I've been doing, thinking about doing one about Rockefeller. And she said, well, you got to talk to Kevin Callahan. And she was right. Kevin's on the board at the Western Reserve Historical Society, such a great place, who does so much good work in Northeast Ohio. And he's going to talk to us about Rockefeller's life in Cleveland. And Rockefeller and his family, he's the oldest of five kids, moves here to, to Northeast Ohio in 1853. We asked Kevin Callahan to talk about when Rockefeller comes to Ohio as a teenager. Uh, yeah, well, Dr. Uh, William Avery uh, Rockefeller came here from Lake uh, Owasco in New York, and he came here in 1853. He moves to Strongsville. They have five children, but and John is 14 and William is 12. And Bill enrolls um, uh, Bill Rockefeller, the father, who is a doctor, a quote-unquote, he, mm-hmm. he uh, enrolls John and Bill at Central High School at the corner of Erie and Euclid Avenue, which is now 9th Street. And it was considered one of the finest schools for mathematics, arithmetic, algebra, and he graduates in uh, 1855. Now, his locker uh, mate right next door was Mark Hanna. Yeah. Now, Mark Hanna was married to Augusta Rhodes, daughter of Dan Rhodes, and he uh, goes on to take over the company and become owner of M.A. Hanna, and what's interesting is he helps John D. later in life, uh, and they have other business relationships. Also, uh, Charles Brush, uh, who develops the Brush Arc Lamp, um, future partner of Tom Edison and GE. He was uh, a good friend, and they end up being partners also. It's interesting in the arcade and other ventures. And he, t- he also is uh, involved in a lot of banks. So Charles Brush, Samuel Mather, John Severance, you know, are all classmates of his. John D. Rockefeller was mature beyond his years, and he had to be. His father was constantly absent, uh, but his father told him to go to a trade school, not go to college when he left Central High. And he took some accounting classes, math classes, becomes a bookmaker. And he had a gift for making money, a gift for counting money and, and finding ways for a company to make more of it. If you look at his Ledger A, which is like a you know an accounting book that he says really changed his life, even as a poor teenager, Rockefeller was still giving 10% to his church, to charities, and the poor. This is 1855. He's 16, 17 years old. He gets his first job. We talked to Kevin about the importance of that first job to John Rockefeller and the, the all-important Ledger A. He took a little bit of time, uh, which is now the Stratton College, and he learned penmanship, uh, Spencerian uh, penmanship, and bookkeeping and banking. So he did a, a little bit of college. Um, but he moved to Cheshire Street, which is now East 9th Street, uh, East 19th Street, in 1858. And he, um, his father uh, recognizes his ability, and he said, I want you to run the whole project. We're going to build a house, and I want you to be the uh, general uh, 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 take a look at all the bids. And he goes out and he gets eight bids for the house. And John D. Uh, took the lowest bid and just really was uh, very tough on, 
on the builder, and they say the builder <laughs> lost money on the project. And uh, here's where he starts Ledger A. And Ledger A is a, a, a list of every expense that he would undertake uh, for the rest of his life, whether it be coffee, uh, um, uh, any you know, toothbrush, it would say 14 cents. Ledger A becomes what he thinks is one of the most important things in keeping track of um, all the expenses in his life. Now he gets a job uh, downtown at a company called Hewlett, Hewitt and Tuttle as a bookkeeper. And this date is very important. It's September 26th of 1855. He, he considers it the most important day of his life. And every, uh, every time September 26th came around for the rest of his life, he'd put up a flag. And, uh, and, and they would uh, celebrate that day. Um, he reads a book about um, a, a wealthy man in New England, uh, Amos Lawrence, who was a textile manufacturer. And uh, he reads this and learns about um, uh, Amos giving away uh, crisp dollar bills. And he said, you know, when I get to be wealthy, and he had planned that he would be wealthy, he, he planned on giving away money. Now, he gave away shiny dimes. He yeah, wasn't going to give away, right, he wasn't going to give away dollars. But uh, <laughs> interesting. He absolutely had planned on being wealthy and uh, thought it was Providence. He's denied a raise, at, and he quits at Hewlett & Tuttle, his first job. Rockefeller starts his own company in downtown Cleveland with Maurice Clark, a, a produce company, and it's very successful. But the Civil War breaks out, you know, right when he's doing this. And, you know, I, I did a lot of reading for this episode, and I see that John D. never fought in the war, even though he would have been in his early to mid-20s. We talked, to, you know, I know his brother served. We talked to Kevin about his new business, going out on his own, and how he gets out of the war. What's interesting is his brother, Frank Rockefeller, uh, did enlist, and he was wounded twice. But John D. Uh, hires a substitute soldier, which was very acceptable and legal to fight at the time. A lot of people did. He felt it was too important for business and to leave his family at this time. So while he stays home, he gives a lot of money um, to a lot of local uh, uh, organizations, but his business, the grocery business, does very, very well during this period. In 1859 in western Pennsylvania, in Titusville, Colonel Edwin Drake struck oil, the Drake Well as it's called, sets off an oil rush in PA, really the first big oil rush in the United States, and it's like those gold rushes in California, people come from everywhere. There's a little oil town called Pithole, Pennsylvania, booze, mud-filled, you know, brothels, just a terrible place. It grew to like 15,000 overnight, 20,000 people. Uh, you know, it's the fifth largest city in Pennsylvania within like its first year of existing. And people are moving there to make it rich. And Rockefeller sees all this just a couple hours away from Cleveland. He makes trips out there to the oil towns of PA. You know, Pithole doesn't even exist anymore. It's, it's a ghost town. But we talked to Kevin about the oil boom and Pennsylvania oil in particular and how it interested John Rockefeller. Titusville is uh, uh, where it was coming. But uh, um, early on, um, the Great Western Railroad um, which was mostly, uh, 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 all, as a matter of fact, all the money came from England to help finance the railroads. And so they financed uh, uh, the railroad, which went from Titusville into Cleveland. And it's very important because the six-inch gauge was very important to bringing that oil to Cleveland. So there's a lot of serendipitous events, as you'll see. Yeah, timing is everything, right? Right. Uh, so they, they buy a three-acre site right on Kingsbury Run, and they start to... Um, uh, uh, refine oil. They use it to, uh, uh, for lamps, 
whale oil and for um, you know illuminating their homes. And oftentimes, uh, you know, a bad batch would blow up. Mrs. Rockefeller um, later she has a, a a lamp actually explode on her, and wow. um, and so it was a dangerous. Uh, um, so whale, you can imagine how dirty and and unpleasant it would be to have um, those sort of uh, uh, gases. But that's how the homes were lit. In 1863. John D. Rockefeller gets in the game, gets in the oil game. He starts Rockefeller and Andrews with Sam Andrews, a nearby uh, British chemist from Cleveland. And they open in the flats, and they're refining oil, Pennsylvania oil. And they're developing kerosene, which is cheaper than whale oil and is incredibly, incredibly popular. It's an, it's an item that everyone has to have for lighting. Uh, Rockefeller quickly, you know, he sees the problems in the oil industry. It's unregulated. The prices are wild. The quality of the product you know, goes up and down, and he wants to make it better. He continues to grow in Cleveland. We talked to Kevin about Rockefeller and really about Cleveland in the late 1860s, early 1870s, as he starts his, his years and his dominance in the oil industry. In the 1870s, yeah, there are so many other companies here that were started at that time. I, I uh, obviously you have Goodrich, um, be a uh, Dr. Goodrich down in, in Akron. You have Sherwin Williams, but you know it's interesting. There's other families here like the Grisellis who go on to start Dupont, and because of their ability to separate sulfuric acid, and uh, suddenly you're able to um, refine oil here. And if it hadn't been for these interesting events, I mean. Um, Griselli happens to be across the street from Standard Oil here in Cleveland, and uh, they're able to separate the oil. So it just happened to be uh, an interesting time. Um, the population here at the time was 92,000 people. It was the 15th largest uh, city in the nation at the time. And, um, you know, it was growing very fast. Rockefeller starts Standard Oil as a, like I said, the, the wild fluctuations in price and quality, and business is booming. There's the Cleveland Massacre, as it's known in 1870, 1871. Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller buy 26 of the 29 refineries. That's how many he owns. He buys six in one day, and he's 31 years old. Cleveland is the ref one of the main refining centers in the country, and Rockefeller makes it the biggest refining center. First, he's got to get rid of his partner, Clark. You know, Clark makes a choice uh, that thousands of people will be faced with. You know, I'm being bought out by a Standard Oil and John Rockefeller. Should I take the cash or take the stock? Clark took the, Clark took the cash. And you know, we talked to, to Kevin about the Huntington brothers. These brothers have to make that same tough decision when, when it's offered by Rockefeller. You know, one goes on to take the cash and, and live a pretty quiet life and one goes takes the stock and starts the Cleveland Art Museum. Uh, we talked to Kevin though about the start of Standard Oil, a company that would change business and become one of the most infamous companies in late 19th early 20th century America. And Clark thinks he's taken them to the cleaners and Clark's delighted to get uh, his cash. Um, but the, so it, in, in 1871 John goes out and purchases 24 companies and now controls 25% of the entire oil production in the world. He bought six companies in one day. By the end of 18, in the 1870s, he controlled 95% of the nation's oil. Rockefeller was quoted as saying, um, 
those who refuse will be crushed. Get into the ark. And that's a great line because uh, he, he, he was correct. I mean, a lot of these companies were losing money. But this is where the um, problem, I think, arises. People later who didn't take stock, they instead uh, uh, took the cash and they come to regret the fact that they didn't take stock. There's the famous story of the Huntington brothers. They come in and they um, said to John D., they said, we'd like to replace all your roofs with a fireproofing system. And he said, sure, but I'd rather give you stock than cash. I'd, you know, I'd, and one brother said, you know, I'll take um, John and Hugh. John took the cash and, and Hugh took the uh, stock. And the other the one who took the stock went on to become very wealthy and uh, was a great contributor to the art museum, where the other brother um, uh, lived on, on West 12th and didn't, didn't fare as well. John D. Rockefeller was incredibly religious. His mother raised him that way, probably in direct confrontation to his absent father. He marries Laura Spellman, Seti. Um, she's an abolitionist, a devout dry. And she turns you know, J.D. Uh, John D. Rockefeller onto this temperance movement as well. They met at high school in Central High, and we asked Kevin just about Seti Spellman, his wife, for, for decades and decades in Cleveland. Well, that's where they met. Um, they, they meet at a temperance uh, movement, and um, uh, they attended. They, uh, Laura and her sister, Lucy, attended Central High School, and her nickname was Seti. And uh, they, they were very interested in anti-slavery. The Spellmans were really ardent uh, abolitionists. They were involved in the—she uh, was involved in the Women's Christian Temperance uh, Society. They liked, obviously, uh, dry. I didn't like anybody um, drinking. Uh, the, the Spellmans were Congregationalists, uh, but John D. was a, a, a firm Baptist. And they get married in 1864, in March of 1864, and they take a month-long um, trip up to um, New York and, and, and uh, Niagara Falls. And uh, when they come back, John D. convinces her to join the Erie Street Baptist Church, which uh, and they both become Sunday school teachers. And they move into a new facility called the Euclid Avenue Baptist Church within a few years, later to be called the Rockefeller Church. Rockefeller is becoming wealthy. Business is booming. Like we said, the Cleveland Massacre, he buys out all these refineries. From 1860 to 1880, when Rockefeller gets started with Standard Oil, it becomes the fastest growing business sector in the city. And so much, you know, growth comes out of Standard Oil, transportation, construction, steel, iron. It makes Cleveland. He moves to this historic and fashionable millionaire's row on Euclid Avenue, just east of downtown. We talked about it in a previous episode about John Hay, who lived on Millionaire's Row. We asked Kevin Callahan, you know, he had a more modest home. John D. Rockefeller, the most wealthy man in the world, really didn't like to show it. He was. He lived right on uh, almost at 40th and Euclid. Uh, it was not an, uh, an assuming big home like a lot of the homes. Um, they considered Euclid Avenue to be the most beautiful street in the world. Uh, a lot of sleigh and cutter races in the uh, in, in the winters, and because the trees arched and and, and and the handsome houses, they said it looked like a large cathedral when you're walking down. The 30th to 40th was considered to be the prime area. There were offshoots. Um, and as time marches on, uh, the people that lived there um, soon would keep their windows closed, even in the hot summer, because so much um, uh, debris was coming in from uh, the factories uh, in the flats that, that it would pile up, and they would uh, soon you know, start to look into the heights to get out and to get away and have clean air. 
Jephtha Wade and Randall Wade were across the, the street, and they, of course, uh, invented and started Western, um, the Western Union. Um, uh, Jeff's, uh, Jephtha's daughter married uh, Sylvester Everett at St. Paul's uh, Episcopal, right there on the corner. And the Everett's, of course, uh, had terrific parties, big parties that brought in President Hayes, uh, President McKinley, President Taft, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. So while all this society was going on, John D. Um, had no interest in, in, in society at all and, right. and, and was very much a family man. Rockefeller becomes the master of what in business is called vertical integration. The, you know, the idea that he controls every part of the industry. And you know, he changes not just the oil industry, but really industry, American industry itself. He refines the oil. He ships it. He packages it. He insures it. Hell, he even, you know, he sells it. Later in the decade, he even starts pulling it out of the ground himself. They control every aspect from the discovery of until it arrives in your house and goes to market. We asked Kevin about JDR's business savvy and how important his vertical integration was to becoming the richest man in the world. You know, I'll tell you, the one thing that I admire about uh, John D. was the fact that when he heard prices uh, that were too high, he would say, well, well, we'll just go and do that ourselves. And uh, that, that was the case uh, with insurance. He decided to become one of the first uh, companies in the United States to self-insure uh, for accidents and fire. Um, he built his own pipelines, his own tank cars to move oil. He leased railroad stations in New Jersey. He hired standard workers uh, around the country to deliver oil and horse and carriage. He bought, a, bought his own tugboats when he felt that the tugs were charging him too much. And um, uh, so he, everything that he could, he, he would branch off and, um, and, and think he could do it at a better price. Thanks for listening to Ohio V. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. Today on the Ohio History Connection Minute, I'm so excited, we're opening the sports exhibit. Uh, Ohio, champion of sports, opens at the Ohio History Center in Columbus uh, March 16th, Saturday. And we'll be checking it out on March 14th. There's an unveiling uh, with Miss Ohio Be the World and I. But today we talked to Jamison Pack. Uh, the chief marketing officer at the Ohio History Connection, not just about this new interactive, like I said, 21st century exhibit. Um, you can join OHC, your membership, and you can come check out sports. Again, go to ohiohistory.org slash join. We also discuss what I'm excited about, and that's the future of the Ohio History Connection, uh, an idea we're working on called the Museum of Ohio, creating a downtown, modern, innovative, and interactive museum in downtown Columbus. Ohio Champion of Sports opens on Saturday, March 16th, and it's really exciting, Alex, because it is unlike anything we have done uh, as an organization um, and uh, as a history uh, museum. 
people will be able to come into this exhibit and experience it on all three levels. It's 6,800 square feet. It includes over 70 stories. Uh, there are 56 first-person narratives from fans, coaches, owners, athletes. Uh, we also are excited because for the first time we are introducing interactives in a way that we never have before. So you might be familiar with the Lustron home where you can come in and you can actually experience a 1950s house. That's right. one kind of interactive experience. This kind of interactive experience with Ohio Champion of Sports will include things like telling your your one minute legend. You know, you make a contribution to the exhibit and become a part of it, either through the one minute legend. You can um, also share your sports injury. You can create an obstacle course. You can do a victory dance, record it, send it to a friend. Um, it's really different because we, in the history business, have a tendency to tell things in a chronological way and give the facts and figures. And definitely people will get those fun sports facts. But in this exhibit, we're telling it thematically. So we're telling it through character, adversity, identity, innovation, tradition, and we're using those topics to introduce people to Ohio's greatest athletes and a lot of unknowns. This exhibit kind of is opening a door. You know, we have a vision of opening, you know, is that still something that the organization is looking at, opening a new museum or a downtown museum or, or that kind of thing? And, you know, it might be a little further off than maybe we had hoped, but... I mean, is that still something that, that the Ohio History Connection is looking to do? Yeah, very much. Uh, very much so. Um, so we at the Ohio History Connection have a vision to create a new museum experience called Museum of Ohio. And the Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit that will open in March is a prototype for what we envision the future museum could be. And we really are hopeful that many people who typically don't think of um, going to a history museum or don't uh, you know, say that they don't enjoy history will possibly come into this exhibit because they do enjoy sports and that they will experience um, history in a new way. And they'll walk out thinking something um, differently about uh, their own association and appreciation for history. And, I, and I'm confident that that's going to happen because you really can't tell the national story of sports without Ohio. Yeah. Thanks again to Jameson for joining us. Uh, we had a nice long conversation. We'll play you the rest of that interview uh, at a later episode this season. We'd like to welcome to the show Ben Weiberg, an attorney in Cleveland, a friend, to talk with us more about John D. Rockefeller. You know, and as Rockefeller attempts to tighten his grip on the oil industry, his associates like his right-hand man, Henry Flagler, they come up with this scheme called the South Improvement Company. These companies that are in combination, it's not known to the public. And if you're not in, you find out that you're not in. Your shipping rates go up. Your expenses associated with oil production suddenly go up. In Pennsylvania, people are rioting. A pit hole farm that sold for $2 million in 1865 sold for $4.37 in 1878. We asked Ben and Kevin about the black eye that was the South Improvement Company, the scheme, and how it started that national perception that Rockefeller was a ruthless tycoon, a man who could not be trusted. The South Improvement Company was a company created by Rockefeller 
to control the entire oil industry. It really was a scheme. It was a secret alliance between Rockefeller and a few other leading oilmen and three of the biggest railroads in that area, the Pennsylvania, the New York Central, and the Erie. And the plan was simple. The agreement was that the railroads would raise their rates across the board for shipping, but give Rockefeller and his cabal a kickback. And that created a very unfair playing field. Pennsylvania suspended the company's charter in 1872 before they could bring their plan to fruition. But the mere threat of that rebate plan just changed the landscape completely. It resulted in the Cleveland Massacre and the Oil War of 1872. And in Cleveland, what Rockefeller would do is he would go to the competing refineries, tell them about the rebate scheme, and told them they had two options. Sell to me, and I'll pay you in standard stock. And he had a quote and you will never know for want, Mm -hmm. or don't sell to me and I'll crush you and run you out of business. But the the effects of the South Improvement Company were acutely felt in the oil regions of Pennsylvania. They could see the writing on the wall that they were going to be elbowed out, and their their very livelihood was at stake. So Franklin Tarbell, resisted as long as he could, but was ultimately destroyed and bought out by Rockefeller and Standard Oil. John D. tries to distance himself from this, but he really couldn't. Uh, uh, it was defined by refiners in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia to, create, to squeeze out independent oil manufacturers. Um, John D. always claimed that he knew very little about it, and, he, uh, and Flagler uh, knew quite a bit about it, and, and he blamed him. Now, in fact, um, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that John D. knew quite a bit about it. Um, uh, It wasn't so much the rebate uh, that was the question, it was the drawback arrangement. In other words, they were trying to get the outside guys, the guys that had the um, uh, outside refiners to pay top dollar, which they would go into a pot and they would split split the profits among themselves to the people who were on the inside. So it was really a very devious thing. When, when it came out in the Plain Dealer in 1872 when they broke the story, there were riots and, uh, and, and protests, and Ida Tarbell really uh, made hay on this, this uh, story about um, the South Improvement Company. And yes, it never got off the ground, but the very fact it was even contemplated was, it shows that there, he was, was um, uh, probably the biggest black eye for him uh, for the rest of his life. We introduce our third guest, uh, Christopher Sagers, professor at Cleveland Marshall College of Law, my alma mater, my corporation teacher, uh, a couple other uh, classes in law school, one of the best teachers I had, really knowledgeable. And, you know, to make business law classes uh, somewhat exciting, that's no small feat. But we couldn't think of anyone better to come on the show uh, and give you a peek into what, not just the Standard Oils case, but was, but just like a, almost like a law school class for our listeners. We talked to him about the trusts, the trust busting, antitrust. You always hear that. Uh, and it really comes from Standard Oil. All this important terminology is born out of John Rockefeller and Standard Oil trying to circumvent the, cor- the corporation laws in multiple states, really. We talked to Professor Sagers about the birth of the trusts. A major thorn in the side of people like, like John Rockefeller, who created Standard Oil, uh, 
was most states prohibited uh, holding companies. They, they prohibited corporations from owning stock in other corporations, so you couldn't have subsidiaries, couldn't have uh, corporations, uh, uh, holding companies rather. And so the practical effect was um, <clears throat> if you wanted to have a really big company, you couldn't put it in one corporation. You had to have more than one corporation. And the states were watchful uh, too to keep people from, from doing funny business to circumvent those ideas uh, so, for example, you couldn't just set up 10 corporations in Ohio, uh, uh, capitalize each one of them to the maximum capital limits uh, allowed by Ohio law, and then treat them as if they're really just one, one firm. So it, it was hard to have a really big company, in other words, in those, in those days without doing some funny business. The word trust um, uh, as a political concern of the late uh, 19th century and the word antitrust that came from it... Um, <clears throat> results from people like Rockefeller and others try, doing various things, doing various uh, uh, clever lawyerly tricks to get around this, the limits in state corporation laws. Um, <clears throat> and one trick in particular that Rockefeller uh, pioneered and that a number of other very big companies followed was <clears throat> to establish a, a literal trust, just the kind of legal uh, entity, the kind of legal trust that you might set up to leave property to your children. They did it to avoid state corporation limits. Um, and specifically they set up a trust in which the folks who would run the big business like John Rockefeller would be the trustees. Uh, and the property contributed to the trust would then be, um, stock in the various corporations set up in, in different states, um, to, to, basically evade state corporation law limits. Um, and then the trustees would run the whole thing uh, essentially as one entity. And so Standard Oil was one of the first and, and the biggest trusts. Uh, this caused a lot of uh, frustration amongst uh, critics of big business in the day, obviously, and so popular agitation against um, them came to be known as the antitrust sentiment. You know, it's around this time that Rockefeller said in the early 1880s, the day of combination is here to stay. Individualism is gone, never to return. In 1879, at age 40, Standard Oil controls 90% of the refining in the world. In a few years, they control 90% of the marketing of oil and a third of the oil wells. And it's at this time that Rockefeller and Standard Oil moved their headquarters from Cleveland to New York. We talked to Kevin about that move to Broadway. In the Standard Oil Company uh, moved to 26 Broadway in Manhattan, um, and, and they moved there and um, uh, they put up a million dollars and they built a 10-story facility. Um, and, and in fairness, though, um, the company was still operating under Standard Oil of Ohio, and they needed to have an entity that would really talk about running into different cities and being able to operate it in different parts of the country. So it made sense. Uh, they called it uh, the Standard Oil Trust, and it was in every state um, um, around. And then it was controlled by the Cleveland Group, and that is Flagler, Hark Harkness. And let's face it, they needed more money at this stage. The Cleveland banks uh, were had been good to him, handy, and all the, the Cleveland bankers. But at the end of the day, they, they needed larger sums of money. Uh, they were very quiet. They didn't have a sign outside their building for many years. They, they uh, were told never to talk uh, to anybody about what they did. So many of the, the big money players, uh, Vanderbilt being one of them, didn't know anything. Who was this Rockefeller guy? 
And what's interesting is Rockefeller at age 29 sets up a meeting to meet Vanderbilt at age 74 and they meet together and they talk about the railroads. And, and I think to myself why I would love to be part of that group, just to sit and listen to um, uh, how John D. handled himself. And while the Rockefellers and Standard Oil moved their headquarters to, to New York, John D. still spends a lot of time in Cleveland. He moves from Millionaire's Road further on the east side, a gigantic property straddling what's now kind of Cleveland Heights, East Cleveland, 700 acres of rolling hills. It's really one of his only failed business endeavors, uh, but he comes to his favorite place. He built a nine-hole golf course on the property. We talked to Kevin just about Forest Hill, Rockefeller's estate in Cleveland. Forest Hill was uh, um, about an 80-acre uh, parcel of land that he built. He buys. Uh, it's in East Cleveland. Uh, it sits up on a big knoll overlooking the lake, and he called it the homestead. He buys it in 1874. And his first thought is he buys it with some investors, and he thinks, well, this would be a wonderful place to have um, the people come and visit. We'll call it uh, a water cure and uh, a resort. And he starts a little railroad uh, that, that brings people out. And it just, uh, there's a depression in 1873. It doesn't go well, and um, they decide to fold up. So uh, the, the house that was there was an old uh, sanitarium. It was absolutely huge. Um, uh, and he decides that he would buy it back. Um, he buys it back and uh, turns it into a hotel for a few months, and that didn't go well. Um, and um, so he, he just decides to shut that down and keep it for his own family home. And um, so that, that was his home in the summer. But he, but he really had moved out. I mean, he really was a New York resident as of uh, uh, 1883, 1884. And I think that's important to remember that Forest Hill was really a summer house. People around the country, they hate Rockefeller. He embodies all this greed that is associated with the Gilded Age. He was the Bill Gates, the Jeff Bezos of his time. But like Gates, Rockefeller gave it away in large numbers. He was doing that even before he was rich. But he gave money to Lakeside Hospital. He started, you know, the Western Reserve Historical Society, Children's Aid Society in Cleveland. Jones Home, the YMCA, he targeted African-American communities as well. Uh, he and Seti were staunch abolitionists. They gave to multiple black churches, matching funds to build those churches. Uh, he, he built the Cleveland Home for Colored People. He even started Spelman College in Atlanta uh, for African-American women. It's still there today. Uh, African-American women in the 18... Uh, the 1800s, about the most oppressed and ignored class in the country. Uh, Spellman was his wife's maiden name, uh, and Spellman College was born, the Rockefeller Institute. He, he started basically Chicago University. We talked to, to Kevin just about some of his philanthropy that gets lost in the shuffle. He was very um, philanthropic here in town. He um, uh, gives uh, money. He, he buys Shaker Lakes and, and creates Shaker, Shaker Lakes. Yeah, Huron Road Hospital is his. All of Forest Hills and all the 260 acres he ends up buying, he, he donates um, back to the city. He buys the arcade in a joint venture with Harkness and Charles Brush. Um, he, you know, he, he's a uh, Western Reserve, um, or the old case, he gave uh, quite a bit of money to, even though people don't aren't aware of it. But he was very, very philanthropic. And, and then on a, on, around the country and around the world, he gave away $540 million, um, and he gave money to the cathedral at Reims and um, uh, hospitals in China. He tries to eradicate hookworms in the deep south, creates Williamsburg. I mean, 
it's amazing how much money he gave away in his lifetime. But, but very good to Cleveland. Rockefeller gives up day-to-day operations of Standard Oil mid in the 1890s. That wasn't known to the public, but people still don't like him. And he is ruthless. And he has left a, you know, a wake of just of ruined lives behind him uh, building you know, this giant company. And as the country moves on from the excessive riches of the Gilded Age to the progressive era at the turn of the century, John D. Rockefeller was the target. He's the target of one of the most important muckraking journalists, uh, Ida Tarbell from McClure's Magazine. She started publishing chapters of her story exposing the dirty tactics of Rockefeller and his associates. When she starts writing what's called The History of Standard Oil in 1902, it's a bombshell. Everyone's reading it. We talk about Ida Tarbell. We ask Ben about the muckraker. She was an investigative journalist who worked for McClure magazine. She is known for having written the incredibly important The History of the Standard Oil Company. And that's a piece that ultimately led to the downfall of the Standard Oil Company as we know it. Um, She's a muckraker. What's a muckraker? You're right. Uh, She was known as a muckraker. And muckrakers were investigative journalists in the late 1800s to early 1900s who reported on a variety of topics such as crime, fraud, corporate abuse, and health and safety. The term muckraker itself, the literal definition, is interesting. It means a rake for muck, muck meaning manure. Mm. So it's a manure rake. So that tells you what these people thought of muck rakers. In this context, the term muckraker was first used by President Teddy Roosevelt during a speech in April of 1906. He was referring to journalists who were preoccupied with reporting on the mud and muck of corruption. These articles are, are, like I said, being read by everybody in the country. But Ida had a motive. Her father was one of these people uh, ruined by the South Improvement Company, one of these Pennsylvania oil men. You know, that was cast aside when Rockefeller began to dominate the industry. She grew up in Titusville, where Drake Well was. And our guest, Ben Weiborg, has been to Titusville. He's got family in Titusville, the home of, of not just the oil industry in Pennsylvania, but also Ida Tarbell. But she was there when Rockefeller took over the oil industry. And it affected her family, and she took him down. Well, in essence, what happened is that Rockefeller ran her father out of business. Ida's father was in the oil industry in western Pennsylvania. He started out making oil storage tanks and eventually got into the oil production and refining business. And he was doing well. He had a prosperous operation going until Rockefeller and the South Improvement Company took over that entire industry and the small refiners such as uh, Franklin Tarbell's were destroyed. articles the history of standard oil comes out you know every few months in mcclure's and more and more of the scandalous corporate misdeeds of, of standard oil are, are laid out people are reading these articles and we talked to ben just about you know what is some of the stuff that tarbell is digging up or alleging in the history of standard oil it was serial form the history of the standard oil company was released in 19 installments 19? 19. They were published from November of 
1902 to October of 1904. The most basic corporate misdeed that they did was they charged excessive rates in an area where there was no competition. In an area where there was competition, they would lower the rates so much they'd be operating at a loss. And the, you know, the reason why was simple, to drive out the competition. But it went beyond that. They would buy land in Pennsylvania to prevent competing companies from uh, building pipelines. They used political influence in Cleveland and in Pennsylvania for banks not to provide loans to competitors. And they went so far as to interfere with competitors' oil shipments. Some went missing. These articles catch the attention of the government, and namely President Theodore Roosevelt, who saw himself as a progressive, a new generation of leaders who were going to use government to clean up society and protect the public. Roosevelt urges action by the Justice Department. He speaks out against the trusts and, and basically talking about Standard Oil. And eventually they are sued. Standard Oil is sued under the Sherman Antitrust Act we could talk about for a long time, but the case of United States versus Standard Oil in New Jersey is decided in 1911. Ohio and President uh, William Taft is in the White House, and I really say it was much more of a trust buster than TR, even though Roosevelt gets all the credit. We talked to uh, Professor Sagers from Cleveland Marshall just about Taft and Roosevelt and who was the real trust buster. A couple things. I mean, first of all, it's not actually clear how much he really believed in antitrust, uh, how much he really wanted to enforce it. He, he also was a person who very plainly thought, uh, he very plainly believed in a view that was common in that day that um, industrial com- combination con- consolidation was going to be inevitable. Um, you, can't, you can't have atomistic competition. Uh, the Industrial Revolution made all that impossible. And, um, you know, he seemed to be kind of ambivalent between two different um, approaches, one of which would be antitrust, break up the trust, et cetera. Uh, but the other would just be <clears throat> let, uh, let business consolidate as much as it wants, but then um, uh, regulate it or indeed even uh, nationalize as president, wasn't Taft really a, a more aggressive antitrust enforcer? Uh, I think the short answer, um, I'm not a historian, I just play one at, at Cleveland Marshall, but the short answer is that um, he, uh, he did in fact bring more enforcement actions than Roosevelt did. And I would bet that he believed in the law more seriously than Roosevelt did. Uh, he didn't actually init- uh, you know, originate the Standard Oil case. That started in, uh, in Roosevelt's administration, but he brought it to a conclusion. Uh, he brought a lot of other cases. I think he believed in the policy. I think what he said as an antitrust professor is what he believed as president. And uh, so he deserves a lot of credit that he doesn't get outside of the antitrust community. At the height of, of all these articles, 1905, there's a rally. The Cleveland businessmen decide to take a trip out to Forest Hill and show their support for John D. Rockefeller. 400 businessmen show up on September 26th. They hold a rally at Forest Hill. And, and when we met with Kevin, he had a book, actually, uh, one of very few copies, but signed by everyone who was there. Rockefeller really appreciated this. These leading businessmen of, of Northeast Ohio paying tribute to him, supporting him in this time of need. 
Well, you know, Ida Tarbell had uh, come into Cleveland, and, and she had had a bad experience. I think her, her family had been um, um, had, had their uh, refinery uh, or oil um, business bought by uh, John D. and felt that it hadn't been a very um, good transaction, so she was bitter. She comes in, and she uh, writes some really harsh and um, uh, stories in McClure's uh, magazine, and, and, and you know, people didn't take to it, even though um, John D. was very quiet and maybe not, um, uh, it wasn't that well uh, um, thought of, um, this really was a backlash. And so in 1905, a group of Cleveland uh, leaders decided to pay their respects to John D. So they went up to his, uh, um, his home and, and with Charles Brush, Bolton, Griselli, Andrew Squire, 400 men in total, and they go up by car and carriage. And um, it, by coincidence, it happens to be the same day, September 26th, 50 years to the day that he had been hired by Hewlett and Tuttle. So it's interesting. So they go up and then the flag's uh, flying and, and they speak. And, um, and one by one they get up and they talk about what he did for Cleveland, which is the most important thing. You know, it's, it's uh, not just John D. It's all the other fortunes that were made here in, in all the other businesses, whether it be Vaselines and oils and, and um, all the different businesses that, that were um, um, started because of John D.'s uh, influence and, and shipping and, and rail. So uh, they went up. And we have a book here, which... Yeah, uh, talk about uh, this book. Yeah, so this book is uh, one of only 400, and there aren't many left. Uh, uh, um, talking about um, that day, and it's signed by John D. and um, uh, and and by everybody who attended that day, and it has his remarks in here, and it's fascinating. He he really is very grateful. Um, you know, the more I read, I think that it, as he went on in life, I think he became um, a much more um, friendly man, and and uh, and and he was very grateful that the Clevelanders would. Um, uh, you know, honor him for this. So I think it's, it's great to have this. In 1911, the Supreme Court finally lays down their decision. And we'll talk to Chris, you know, about what they decided, but whether you know, it was an unreasonable restraint of trade or their monopoly, uh, the corporate misdeeds of Standard Oil, their business tactics. But first, Chris lays out for us really what the court used, the facts, the statement of facts kind of that they used to support what ultimately was a unanimous decision against Standard Oil. They quickly, uh, he, he and his associates quickly took control of oil refining in Cleveland, which at the time was uh, the, the major center for, for oil refining. So uh, the first thing they did was they got control over a major component of the business. The second thing they did, uh, according to the government, was they used their power over refining to uh, pressure uh, railroad companies to give them uh, rebates, yeah. uh, uh, low prices that their competing refiners couldn't couldn't compete with, um, and they also uh, acquired some railroads. Um, next thing they did was um, uh, uh, acquire. Uh, they uh, rather they integrated uh, forwards and backwards, so they integrated into both uh, you know oil uh, drilling and. And then into refining, and then into retailing the ultimate products. Uh, b- back in those days, oil wasn't for gas, gasoline obviously, because there weren't cars yet. Um, but kerosene was um, was a staple product of the day. So um, they integrated backwards and forwards into the whole business of making kerosene, uh, including distributing it 
through uh, uh, rail ownership and so on. Uh, and then the final thing they did, allegedly, was uh, they engaged in predatory pricing, which means selling a product uh, so low that it forces your competitors out of business. Court ruled in 1911 that Standard Oil was a monopoly. They had violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, and they must be broken up. Rockefeller found out the decision he was golfing. He was golfing actually with his priest, and he says to his priest, uh, "You know, do you have any money?" And the priest asks him why. He goes, "Because you should invest in Standard Oil." Um, and Rockefeller was right. He would make more money somehow out of this loss in the Supreme Court. But we talked to Professor Sagers the great uh, corporations law professor here in Cleveland, you know, about the Standard Oil decision. So Standard Oil conceals uh, some real tensions. Um, it's, a, it's a nearly unanimous decision. You get a concurrence, so it's unanimous as to the result. Uh, um, uh, Harlan, in his concurrence, is pretty critical of the reasoning. But otherwise, you've got eight out of nine on board with uh, Chief Justice White's Opinion, and so it might seem like the law at that point was was pretty well settled. All the all the justices agreed about it, uh, but actually, there's some really deep tensions. Um, as I mentioned, um, the Standard Oil decision was was politically controversial. It was a real point of popular controversy, and it was because people read Standard Oil as emasculating the Sherman Act. They thought that uh, the law, in fact, had been adopted to prohibit every contract in restraint of trade and that uh the court wussed out in standard oil uh and all these it was very unpopular and all these things would uh would play in the 1912 uh presidential election which is i i would guess you know uh was controversial would woodrow wilson was elected on on a wave of sort of strong populist uh frustration including frustration over the standard oil case Standard Oil is broken up into dozens of companies. All companies at Rockefeller own shares, large amounts of shares. And all of a sudden in 1911, he's worth almost a billion dollars. Our GDP was 35 million in America, meaning he's about 135th of the economy. That's really, that's like 3%. I said 2% earlier. We talked to Ben about, you know, the breakup of Standard Oil and how it actually made Rockefeller richer made him the wealthiest man in the world and created all these gas companies that we're familiar with he did Uh, the breakup happened in about 1911 and the breakup led to what is called uh, baby standards there were 34 of them and to give you an idea i'm not going to list all 34 but uh, standard oil of new jersey standard oil of new york resulted in exxon mobil Standard Oil of California turned into Chevron, Standard Oil of Indiana, Amoco. So we're talking about these behemoth corporations in their own right. And what happened is each baby standard, as they called them, stayed in their own sphere of influence. Uh, Standard Oil continued as Ohio, and they operated in Ohio. Standard Oil of New Jersey stayed in New Jersey, Standard Oil of New York stayed in New York, and so on. So the integrated monopoly stayed. It didn't go anywhere with the breakup. It just kind of reordered. It reordered, exactly. And do you remember the old Sohio stations? I, I do. Yeah, I think that they got bought out by BP. That's what all our BP yep. stations are now, yeah. Yeah, BP bought out Amico. And what made Rockefeller a fortune 
is he had about 25% of the outstanding Standard Oil stock. And when Standard Oil was dissolved in 1911, the agreement was that he would take the same percent in the baby standards. So he had 25% of ExxonMobil, Chevron, Marathon, and large portions of BP. So it made him a fortune. Another reason Rockefeller becomes the wealthiest man in the world is great timing. Just as the electric light bulb is being installed in every house and building you know, from, from Ohio and Thomas Edison, and the need for kerosene is, is plummeting in every home, boom, out comes the car, the automobile, and gasoline, which was you know, a substance that wasn't even really uh, used back then. And suddenly, now everyone needs a car, and you need gas stations. We talked to, to Ben about, you know, the advent of gasoline and how it vaults Rockefeller into a strata of wealth that, that no one had ever experienced. Well, when they started producing and refining oil in the 1860s, it was used for kerosene for use in lamps, for lighting. And with the advent of the light bulb, kerosene wasn't needed anymore. And fortuitously for uh, Rockefeller and the Standard Oil Company, they had about a 90% market share at the turn of the century. And that's when the automobile came into being. So they had the market cornered when there was a huge demand for gasoline. And up, up until that point, gasoline was an unwanted byproduct. Some refiners went so far as to just dump it into rivers. Yeah. But now there was a market for it. And Rockefeller was an innovator. And, you know, there's an oil boom in like the Lima, Ohio area, um, northwest Ohio. And Standard Oil takes over these oil fields. It's pumping out a lot of oil, but this oil stinks. It smells terrible. Um, and they're experimenting with it. And they're actually able to create really good-smelling gasoline. It's these kind of innovations. They, Standard Oil was just better at it than anybody else. But you know, the oil boom in northwest Ohio really led to gasoline being the number one product. Uh, they were able to open up some oil wells, uh, some oil uh, research centers down in Lima, Ohio. And here's yeah. where they learned how to, how, to, how to break the oil and how to clean it and, and, and bring it to and, and take advantage of all the different um, uh, 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 subsidies that you can get from oil. And, and at that time, as you know, the uh, car starts to come out and, and chances are it might have fizzled out had he not switched gears. And, um, um, no. But, but his, his ability to bring in the right guys, uh, there was a guy named Frasch who lived on Euclid Avenue who was a German chemist, and he's so one of the guys that suggests and, and is able to figure out how to uh, break the oil down and create other, other um, derivatives. Yeah, and that Lima gas, I know it was a huge oil boom in, in western, northwestern Ohio, but that gas had like a bad smell to it or something, right? Yes, and they were able to clean it, but that's, that's uh, I think, where Griselli comes in, they, their, their ability to clean the oil and get the sulfur out. You know, one thing I wish we could talk more about was Rockefeller was a health nut. He almost lives to 100. He didn't drink ever. You know, his eating habits, he'd eat very, very healthy, very little. Um, you know, he plays golf every day. We talked to Kevin about, you know, but it was weird stuff, stuff that, you know, nowadays we would think are odd, but it worked for him. We talked to Kevin about Rockefeller's health and how he lives well into the 1930s. Well, you know, I'll tell you, he suffered from alopecia. Well, alopecia is a, is a disease where you lose your hair, all your hair, and it's from stress. He, he lost all his hair, his eyebrows, his mustache all fell out, and he got a wig, and he was, it was uh, hard for him. 
But um, he goes to meet a Dr. Bigger, who's a homopathic uh, uh, doctor who talks about um, uh, ingredients and things that uh, 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 instead of uh, surgery or anything, he, he recommends uh, dietary things. And he said, just eat very, eat very little, eat um, um, you know, porridges and just very small amounts of food. But he also gave him the, the three uh, things he should do, and that's to chew his food 28 times, uh, don't drink alcohol, and don't have any caffeine. And, and, and they hoped to be golfing together uh, at the turn, when they both turned 100. And uh, unfortunately, Dr. Bigger dies at um, 87, and John D. dies uh, in, his ni- in his late 90s, but yeah. didn't get there. Rockefeller doesn't make it to 100. On May 23rd, 1937, he dies. He's buried in Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. Uh, you know, it's a grave that I've been to. It's got a 65-foot obelisk. The Rockefeller in the late 19th, you know, early 20th century when all this Ida Tarbell stuff was going on, he didn't have a publicist. He didn't go out and defend himself in the press. Uh, but later in life, he was almost seen like kind of America's rich uncle. You know, he's on video. He's got PR people and, and really did kind of change his reputation from the most hated man in the world before he died. Um, and really the story that started now ends in Cleveland. We talked to Kevin about Rockefeller's death in the late 1930s. He's buried at Lakeview Cemetery and, um, uh, you know, he, he's very, he has a beautiful obelisk uh, that goes straight up and uh, all the Rockefellers are buried there except for Frank, <clears throat> his brother who he didn't get along with. <laughs> he's, buried, uh, he's buried uh, around the corner and, um, and that's a fascinating story too. But, um, uh, you know, it's interesting, it's right near him are uh, Hannah and Clark and um, Bacchus and Spellman's and Dr. Bigger, all within, you know, uh, a short distance. Yeah, so they're, they're right over there, John Hayes over John there. John Hayes over there, yeah. It's a fascinating um, 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 place, but it's great that um, John Dee insisted, even though he was a New York resident and really um, didn't get buried there, he insisted on coming back and being buried in his backyard where it all started. finish up our conversation with Professor Sagers. You know, oil is kind of the most famous antitrust case, standard oil. Um, but the most famous recent antitrust case, you know, kind of like in my lifetime, was the Microsoft ruling. Um, but a giant number of new companies are accused of being monopolies. Facebook, Google, Amazon. Um, and not just monopolies, but, but doing corporate misdeeds like standard oil. The types of things that expose standard oil to not just you know breaking the law, but also getting the attention of people and having people turn against them. We talked to Professor Sagers about the state of antitrust now and what the future may hold for some of these giant corporations. They all remind me of Standard Oil. I mean, John Rockefeller, in my mind, was not a bad person. He was just a business person who did things the way most business people do. Lots and lots of people in the world, lots of companies and lots of executives would be in, in danger if we had uh, a more real antitrust right now. Uh, and even under the severely weakened antitrust we've got, um, if I had to guess, I think the companies in the most jeopardy right now are the, the social media platforms, uh, Amazon perhaps above all, uh, and Google. You, you know, the, the left right now, I think, looks at companies like that and say, and, and will say, 
we should break them up even if they aren't economically harmful because they're politically harmful. They, they endanger our democracy. Uh, they have too much power over us. They have too much power over government, et cetera. Um, and so we're not going to break up these companies just because they're big or just because um, they have dangerous influence over government. I think we might break them up because <clears throat> there is actually uh, plausible theories of their harm on strictly traditional economic grounds. Um, so <clears throat> the, the significance of a case like Standard Oil for all of this is that um, so Standard Oil adopted this reasonableness standard. We won't break up a company or we won't impose antitrust penalties unless um, they've behaved in some way that's unreasonable. Okay, well, we're not going to break up um, Facebook or we're not going to break up Amazon unless we can show that they're both big and that they've done something unreasonable. And the way that's implemented under current law is if you bring a Sherman Act Section 2 monopolization claim against a company like Amazon, let's say, you can't just say, we should find monopolization liability because Amazon has a really big market share or because Amazon is worth upwards of a trillion dollars or whatever it is. You have to say they have a big market share that gives them market power and they got it through some unreasonable means. And in the law, we say the means to get power that is unreasonable um, <clears throat> are steps that are quote unquote exclusionary. So the big question is, well, these companies are big and that's that's one thing, but what did they do to get big that was exclusionary? And okay, I keep saying this is gonna be interesting and it's not interesting yet, but here's the interesting part. I think there is evidence, even on publicly available information, Absolutely. that these guys have done stuff that's exclusionary. So, you know, you read more and more in the papers that Amazon disfavors certain companies uh, through on its on its platform. Uh, Amazon is trying to favor its own private label brands. That's something we're hearing about lately. Uh, Amazon apparently is doing funny business with um, with whatever the product is, the Echo, um, Alexa. So if you ask Alexa, Alexa, you know, show me uh, socks. Uh, you might think, well, how could Amazon do anything anti-competitive there? Well, Amazon can favor, you know, I mean, algorithmically favor. Um, a provider of socks that paid Amazon a, a, a bribe, you know, paid Amazon a, a penalty, a, a, a royalty or something. Just like the old rebates. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I think there is probably a case to be made. I think definitely the government, even under the Trump administration, the government is looking hard for evidence of the specific exclusionary acts that would be necessary uh, to challenge one of these firms. And I I've been saying for a while, I, it would not surprise me at all if we see, uh, you know, the first big monopolization claim since United States versus Microsoft um, against one of the platforms. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the Trump administration that does it. For someone who's arguably the most important Clevelander, there's not as many remembrances of Rockefeller in the land as you would think. You know, there is the Rockefeller building uh, at West 6, downtown West 6 in Superior. There's Rockefeller Park you know, 285 acres from University Circle to the lake that he gave, just gave to the uh, to the city. Go drive that on the east side. It's beautiful. The arcade downtown, the, like the world's first indoor shopping center, still beautiful. Can't believe how old that place is. He was involved in the building of the arcade. You know, over by my, where I used to live on in Cleveland Heights, there's the Heights Mayfield, uh, Mayfield and Lee, the Heights Rockefeller building. You know, there's a Rockefeller Boulevard, kind of the flats where he started his first refinery. Um, but that's really it. You know, you can go to see 
a ton of his stuff at the Western Reserve Historical Society. Uh, but we talked to our, our guests, Kevin and Ben, just about, you know, for better or worse, John D. Rockefeller was probably the most influential Clevelander of all time. I don't know what Cleveland would be uh, today, but I can tell you that the railroads and the amount of shipping and the amount of um, money that, that, that was produced at the turn of the century um, was, was all due to him, all due to Standard Oil, all due to um, him insisting that the Titusville oil come here. And, um, but it was also, um, as I said, uh, serendipitous that uh, Griselli is here to help him. Uh, understand how to uh, uh, crack the oil, and um, I think his ability to um, hire the right people and bring in other folks. But the amount of uh, people that came in and, and grew and started companies—it's just—it's just, it's just uh, um, unbelievable what it did for for Cleveland's legacy. The dissolution of Standard Oil made Rockefeller a fortune, and it's it's strange to think that a kid from the suburbs of Cleveland became the wealthiest private citizen the world has ever known. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation for today is Titan by Ron Chernow. Um, nobody goes more in depth than Ron Chernow. You might know him as the author of Hamilton. He wrote a book in 1998 about John D. Rockefeller. Really good stuff. And also, Kevin alerted us to a book that we read called Rockefeller in Cleveland. Uh, kind of a hard book to find, but we found a copy, and it really does a great job if you want to learn more about Rockefeller's life and influence in Ohio. Uh, thanks to our guests, Kevin Callahan, Western Reserve Historical Society, Ben Weiborg, Cleveland attorney, and knowledgeable guy. Thank you so much, good friend. Much appreciated. And thanks again for letting us use your uh, law firm conference room downtown. That was great. Ben works at Nuremberg Paris, uh, personal injury attorneys in, in downtown Cleveland, mphm.com. So if you have any questions about an injury, Ben is a great guy to ask. Um, and lastly, Chris Sagers of my old corporations professor, Cleveland Marshall, uh, still there and still doing such a great job. So we really appreciate it. Uh, sorry, I didn't pay more attention in law school. When it comes to oil, uh, and there's some standard oil characters, but if you haven't seen the old, the movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson film, please go see it. It's so good. It really gives you an idea of the grittiness of this oil, uh, these oil fights. And that's really what it was, this character Daniel Plainview. Great movie. Go watch it. Episode 12, we'll kind of be looking at the consequences of Cleveland's industrial boom. We will talk about the day the river burned. In episode 12, we will talk about the burning river, the Cuyahoga. We'll go back to 1969. And is it true that Cleveland helped save the world and start the environmental movement? Uh, thanks again to Jamison Pack. Guys, got to go see Ohio Champion of Sports. 
Um, you just go to the Ohio History Center there at, right off of I-71, 17th Avenue, and check out this new exhibit. It's on all three floors, uh, and it is really looking forward to it. Again, it starts on March 16th, Saturday. You can go to theohiohistory.org slash join to get your membership or just show up at the museum and check it out. Uh, I'm going to take some friends uh, in the next week or two and really excited. Thanks again to our friends at GoBus, RideGoBus.com. Thank you for your support in Season 3. If you're looking to get around Ohio uh, on the cheap with Wi-Fi reclining seats, uh, again, you can listen to our show on a GoBus. They got Wi-Fi. So thanks again to them, and we will see you guys in two weeks. This has been Episode 11, Ohio versus Wealth. Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com and all Ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State, so make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.